Good morning. Terrific. Let's kick off. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government. Delighted to have Sakir Starmer here this morning, Shadow Secretary of State for exiting the European Union, and of course Labour MP for Hoban and St Pancras. Thanks very much indeed for coming. Thanks for having me. Great. It couldn't be a more interesting or lively time with much of what we're going to talk about pitching up in the Lords today. So, yeah. Let's start though. Let's start uh, right to the uh, the point that uh, Kisama has um, has uh, laid out, as you all know the six tests that Labour would like to be satisfied if it's going to support a withdrawal uh, agreement vote. And um, if we can have the, the six tests to stop everyone either trying to memorise them, look them up, or me or Kia having to rattle them out, here they are. Um, and I wanted to ask you about a, a couple of these. Let me just start with uh, what seems to me the most precise of all of them, the one referring to the exact same benefit. That is that... Um, that in, in, uh, in any deal with the, the European Union in the future is going to deliver the exact same benefits as we currently have as members of the EU. I mean, that, that's a remarkably precise uh, claim. Um, are, are you really going to stand by that one? Well, let me just explain the purpose of the test and then come to yeah. your question in specifics. Um, the, there, there are bookends, really, to this process. The beginning of the process was the triggering of Article 50 and giving the Prime Minister permission to start the negotiations. At the other end, the other bookcase or bookend is when the Prime Minister comes back with her proposed deal. Uh, that'll actually be the first time that Parliament has had the chance to vote on the substance of the matter. Of the deal. Um, and we're yeah, fighting yeah. Uh, to, we've been fighting to have that vote. Uh, we've been fighting to make that vote mm. meaningful, and there are some really important amendments that we'll probably come to yeah, later we're, about we're how that, come on that, that works. Yeah. The question then is, is how's the opposition going to approach that vote? Um, and what we did, this was about um, a, just over a year ago, uh, we set out these tests. So these tests are intended as our tests that we will subject the government's proposed Article 50 deal to when it comes back to Parliament. Now, they weren't plucked out of thin air. Each one of these tests was carefully taken from the words used by the government and the promises they made about the deal they would be bringing back. So none of these were just made up by us, plucked out of thin air. Each and every one was taken from the government's own promises and the government's own word. The second one, which has attracted a lot of attention, came out of the words of David Davis. He stood at the dispatch box, he was challenged, um, about the red lines that the government had adopted very early on. One of the big problems, I think, of the negotiations has been that the government set down really, really strong red lines from the start, out of the single market, out of the customs union, nothing to do with the European Court of Justice, out of the agencies. Very strong set of red lines. When he was challenged on that, um, he said, don't worry, um, we will have a deal that delivers the exact same benefits. Um, and that, so those words came from David Davis. Now, Lest any of you are thinking, heaven forbid, that David Davis may have said something with dispatch box that he didn't quite mean um, and it didn't really, those words weren't really, really important. What is even more significant from my point of view is when we put these tests out there, um, the Prime Minister then uh, made a statement about the EU in Parliament and she was quizzed about these tests and she went through them and she said, we're determined to meet them. So they're exacting tests, they're high tests, they're the tests we will use for the deal when it comes back. Um, but they are in fact taken 
intentionally from the government's promises. Right, I, underst I, underst I understand exactly that. You made, you made that point very well. But as you said, that was a year ago. Years gone by. What I'm asking you is whether you are still standing by that one that says that Labour will vote, uh, will support a vote only if there are the exact same benefits. Yes. The government's lowered its ambitions because of its own red lines. We're not lowering our tests because they've lowered their ambitions. So we will apply these tests faithfully to whatever is put on the table in October, November, whenever it is uh, that the proposed deal comes back. Um, and if they measure up, all well and good. If they don't, I've indicated on numerous occasions we'll vote against. All right, but the, the, the Prime Minister has said uh, already, look, the access uh, to each other's markets will be less than it is now. Um, which she said, she said fairly recently. So does that mean in your book that you're going, can you tell us now that you're going to vote against this? We will apply the test when the time comes to the proposed deal that they've brought back. But I'm not going to adjust my test every time the Prime Minister adjusts her ambitions. I'm going to, I'm going to apply my test to what she brings back in the autumn and we'll faithfully apply it then. Let's talk, uh, thanks, thanks very much for these. Let's talk um, about um, migration a bit, though that, that, was, that was one of them. Um, what is the vision of migration that you have? Uh, it was captured in your test as well. You want something that's good for the economy, but is also, uh, you said, fair to communities. Um, does that amount to controls on migration? Well, the first thing I think we all need to do when we're talking about migration from anywhere, um, including from the EU, is to make sure that um, we welcome and recognise the huge contribution that so many people have made who've come to this country from different places over many, many years and are not just a contribution in a financial sense, but they're part of our society. And I think we've very often got the tone about migration wrong um, from the start. And there are issues about EU citizens here and UK citizens abroad, which have been niggling away for a very, very um, long time. What we recognised in our manifesto um, and is obvious is that um, uh, upon exiting the EU, the freedom of movement rules cease to apply and therefore um, a new framework needs to be devised and both parties um, are grappling with this. The um, government's intention is to have a review that's going on at the moment um, through the Migration Advisory Council and to bring forward legislation sometime later this year as the proposal. What we've said is the approach that they are taking, which is based on numbers, we've got to get the numbers down, is the wrong approach. We, we need something that's principle-based and that recognises um, what our communities want and need, but also recognises the needs of our economy, because it is blindingly obvious that large parts of our economy can't function um, in the way that they need to if we don't have uh, a, a movement of people over borders, both from the EU and, and beyond. But um, the phrase we've uh, the test it, gone now, but, it's, uh, but the fair management of migration means balancing that, but in a principled way, rather than just bearing down on the numbers. <laughs> bearing down on the numbers has been the approach this government has taken for years now, and it doesn't work. Uh, and it's the wrong approach to say we've got to achieve a number, rather than doing it by a principle-based approach. But I'm pressing you on this because I, I want to explore the, the vision that you have of a future relationship with the EU if there were a Labour yeah. government. And so you do want more controls on migration than there would be under the, the present single market rules. Well, I, it, the, the rules will change. That is inevitable. There will have to be, I mean, there are controls at the moment. There will be 
controls um, in the future. The question is, what is the framework that we will apply on the one hand, and that's the principal piece of work that needs to go on in this country. There is a separate set of issues, which is what is the discussion that's going on in Europe about freedom of movement, and that is not static. If you listen to President Macron, it is obvious that he's got his sights on the posted workers directed directive. If you speak to other people in Europe, it's pretty obvious that there are going to be uh, changes in Europe on freedom of movement. The idea that we're negotiating against a static background, I think, is wrong. And both conversations need to go on at the same time. You've talked about a new relationship with the single market. Can you tell us something about what you want from that? Well, um, what we have focused on from start to finish is the benefits of the single market and the customs union. That's because they're so important. They're so important to trade and to the economy, and because they're so important to the trade and, to trade and economy, they're important to the entire um, relationship. Um, now, there are two ways of approaching this. You can cling on to a particular model or institution. You can choose a preferred country. Um, you know, do you want the Norway model? Do you want the Switzerland model? Or you can start from principle, which is what is it you're trying to achieve? And what we've said is what is it we're trying to achieve? Um, and what we want is the benefits of the single market, the customs union, in whatever configuration that may be. And the customs union is probably the best um, example of this. Um, and we got a vote on this in the Lords mm -hmm. this afternoon. It's the first of some really, really important votes. Um, and we have said the benefits of the customs union outweigh the fantasy um, of the sort of trade deals that some in the government have pretended are going to fall into our lap over the coming years. Um, now, if you are not a member of the EU, um, then you have to recreate those benefits in some other form, which is why um, we have very clearly said we would seek to negotiate a customs union with the EU that does the work of the current customs union, mm. delivers the benefits of the current customs union. Mm. And that is the vote that's going to come in later on this afternoon in the House of Lords. Uh, it's a cross-party amendment, um, and if we win that, it'll come back to the House of Commons um, on what we call ping pong, um, and we hope that we can secure a very important victory um, on that to shape the sort of deal uh, that we will have with the EU. But it is essentially saying we want to stay close economically to the EU because it's been our biggest trading partner, it's going to continue to be our biggest trading partner, um, and uh, we are better off um, seeing our economic future with Europe as the most important set of trading nations. It doesn't rule out others. Um, but putting that as the first priority, the trade deal with Europe. Just, just staying on that deal with Europe, and particularly the single market bits of it, we'll come back, we'll come back to the customs union, which I agree is an absolutely crucial point. Yeah. Um, but on the single market, and you want things like um, you know, more freedom over state aid, you, you freedom over, a bit more freedom over migration, as you've been discussing. Why do you think the EU would give Labour a middle way, a bespoke agreement, if you like, where it hasn't been very keen to give? Well, the first thing to say, everything is subject to negotiation. Um, uh, on the questions like state aid, um, on the speech that Jeremy Corbyn made in Coventry, you'll have noticed that what he said was, if necessary, um, and subject to um, negotiation. I don't personally think that there's anything in our manifesto of June last year that couldn't have been rolled out and implemented under the current arrangements, which is obviously within the EU. So I don't think we should exaggerate the extent of any um, issues okay, but you're or still asking there. for some modification well, of the of the. I, I absolutely take the point that there is going to be change anyway. We've agreed, we've agreed, we've agreed if Britain is coming out of the EU, yeah. but but why should the the EU give a Labour government uh, the the flexibility it hasn't really uh, been prepared to show this one? Well, it has actually been flexible with every single country it's negotiated with. The idea that it's not been flexible is wrong. 
If you look at each trade agreement the EU has struck, each one is different, each one accommodates the different economies and needs of each country that's been um, negotiating. Norway is a classic example of that. Norway, of course, is very, very close to the single market, um, very close to the single market, but because um, agriculture and fisheries were so important in Norway, they're outside of the arrangement, specifically and bespokely taken out because of the interests um, of Norway. And you can see, I went to Norway to study that with them for four days. I then went over to Switzerland for three days to study their 120 bilateral arrangements. The idea that the EU doesn't um, accommodate um, the needs and the economies of other countries when it's negotiating an economic arrangement um, is simply um, not borne out when you look at the history of the trade deals uh, that they have done. So the UK is not asking for some special arrangement. Um, all we're asking for is that we negotiate um, to achieve the same benefits as the single market, taking into account um, the fact that we're a huge economy just departing from the EU. Uh, and, and that is, forgive me, asking for a special arrangement. I mean, that, no, it's, that it's, it's it's ask, ask, is asking for a modification to, to the, the single market. You're, once you're outside of the membership treaty, you've got to agree a new treaty. I don't think there's anybody that disagrees with that. Um, what is in the new treaty is not going to be um, a replication of the membership treaty, because that would be um, membership. So, of course, it's going to be a different treaty. And there have to be negotiations about how the voice um, of Britain uh, is heard, how the uh, negotiations work, uh, how the um, frameworks work, or the institutions are going to police this if they're needed, what's the role of a court. Of course, that's got to be put in order. And I don't understand the EU to be saying we're not prepared to have that kind of conversation. And I've been going backwards and forwards to Brussels for many, many, many months now, having lots mm. and lots of meetings. I don't think they're saying you've got to be in a straitjacket of somebody else's agreement, flick through the uh, agreements that have already been made and see if you can find one that sort of fits. What they're saying is make an in-principle decision. And this, I think, is their basic frustration. Are you telling us you want to stay economically close to the EU? Because if so, there's a discussion to be had. There are tools that can make that work. Or do you want to be distant? Um, and if that's what you really want, then there is a different discussion to be had with different tools. But what you can't do um, is have both at the same time. And that is, um, from my discussions, what they really mean by no bespoke deal. It doesn't mean that there won't have to be a deal that is tailored to the UK. Of course uh, there will. There will be a treaty. It will be the EU-UK treaty. And it will not be the exact same treaty as there are with other countries. It wouldn't make sense for it to be the same treaty as uh, for every other country. And... Uh, I think we're, in some places we're talking past each other here where um, some of what the EU has said has led people to think that we have simply got to dust off other agreements and see if we can fit in them. I don't think that's right, I don't think that's what they mean and I don't think that's going to happen. The question the government's failing to answer, and this is the one that's frustrating them, is do you want to stay close? Do you want to have that discussion about what close looks like? Or do you want to be distant? And the reason the government can't answer it is because they can't decide within the cabinet. And those speeches we had in the run-up to the Mansion House speech by the Prime Minister are the clearest evidence of that. You had Boris Johnson saying, let's rejoice about the very fact that we can now be different, we can diverge, we can go off in a different direction, our focus doesn't have to be Europe, this is Independence Day, it's great, it's going to be a different future. And then you had David Davis saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> We don't want to change any of these standards. It's a race to the top. We want to improve the standards. We're not going anywhere fast. Um, and so 
the frustration, I think, of all of us, including myself, is that central question, do you want to be close, do you want to be far, still not being answered by the government. So they well, don't know what negotiation they're actually having. You've had to broker that, uh, that, that discussion within the Shadow Cabinet as, uh, uh, as well. But yeah. let's, uh, let's, let's come on to the, um, uh, the customs union and also the, the passage of this through Parliament, which is terribly interesting, as you were referring to before. Yeah. And I recommend to anyone who has not read it, the Institute's uh, report by Just Raphael on Hogarth on Monday. Yeah. Raphael Hogarth and, and Hannah White, which is, I humbly suggest to you, the clearest and best account of how Parliament may or may not handle this that you were ever going to get. Um, crucial stuff just at the moment. It, yeah. it is a really good report yeah. and it's, it's right yeah. in the middle of where we're at. So you refer to, I mean, right where we're at, which is um, the Lords today. Yeah. And you've, uh, you've talked a lot about Labour wanting uh, the, the UK to stay in a customs union. Um, what's going to be your route to trying to achieve that? Well, the, the route to achieving this... Might be more than one. <laughs> yeah, the, the route to achieving this is focused on the deal coming back in October, November. And that, I think, is the central focus now, um, for obvious reasons, over the coming months, i.e. that vote in October, November. And in the first place... the deal on the future, um, the, the future framework and the withdrawal agreement coming to the Commons in, in, the, in the autumn? Yeah, I mean, there will... What we envisage is that um, there will be a proposed deal um, which will set out the Article 50 withdrawal terms and also um, indicate what the future arrangements are going to be. Now, uh, there are a number of questions bound up um, with all of that. The first is, when is this vote going to take place? Um, because if it takes place too late, it's not going to be meaningful. And therefore, what we've extracted from the government is a commitment that we'll get the vote in, essentially still in draft form and before it goes to the European Parliament, where it's also got to be um, voted on. And that's why um, it's very important that we get it in about October, um, November, because that's the only way um, it can be examined on its merits as a draft. The next question is... Um, what test are you going to apply? And we've dealt with that, and we will apply um, from the opposition our tests. The third is, what happens if you don't approve of the government's deal? If Parliament the, votes it down. Yeah, so the Prime Minister has said time and again, um, if you don't vote for my deal, then it's no deal. Well, no deal's about the worst possible outcome that you could possibly end up with. So to say to Parliament, I'm going to give you a meaningful vote, I'm going to really bring Parliament in here, I'm going to make you feel really important about the future of your country, here's my deal, you may think it's not very good, but if you don't like that, you can have something worse. Um, and that is the proposal that the Prime Minister has at least, in theory, put on the table. And what we're doing in really important amendments in the Lords at the moment, I think probably the most important amendments we've been laying, is to lay an amendment that says, no, we, Parliament, do not accept that binary choice. And the amendment we've drafted um, is that if, that, that we will have a deal, uh, we will have a vote on the proposed deal, and if Parliament does not approve the deal, votes it down, doesn't have confidence in what the Prime Minister's brought back, then at that point, the next sub-clause, the government must proceed according to a then motion of the House. And so we actually. So take Parliament gets to say what Parliament happens. Parliament gets to say in October or November what happens if the, the deal is not approved. Not the Prime Minister saying it's no deal. And that is the only way of making sure this is a meaningful 
um, vote, and that Parliament actually gets to say what happens next. Now, what's why, why, really... why, let me ask you one thing: Why are you doing this now? Why are you bringing this oh. amendment now, rather than a year ago uh, when the Article Fifty? Uh, was, was, was triggered. Wasn't, wasn't that a better time to try and set conditions on how this was going to happen? We put down, I don't know how many amendments mm. to the Article 50 bill. I've lost count. Uh, the government whipped and voted down every mm. single one of them. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and many people have said to me, why didn't you just win your amendments? Well, the answer is because if the government whips its MPs and they vote according to the whip, they will win a vote because they won the... the, the, the uh, election and, and the DUP are supporting them on Brexit. So it wasn't that we didn't mm. put down amendments. We put down so many amendments um, across the piece in the Article 50 Bill and each and every one of them was voted down. And that's why we're going again, obviously. The, uh, I think the climate has changed um, and this is a really important amendment coming um, from the Lords but with cross-party support. This is cross-party, so there are Conservative peers who have signed this amendment there are Lib Dem peers who've signed the amendment, there are cross-party peers who've signed the amendment, and there are Labour peers and the Labour front bench that have signed the um, amendment. And that is, that is why it's such an important um, amendment. It's not, it's not an opposition amendment on the way up to the Lords. It's a very strong cross-party amendment um, that, if passed, will come back. And um, if it comes back, if it comes back successfully, and, and I hope it does, because it is so important to that crucial vote in the autumn, um, then I hope MPs on all sides of the House will vote to keep it intact because that gives them um, the power to do something about it if they don't think the Article 50 deal is as good as it should be. Um, for MPs, when it comes back, to simply say, we'd prefer not to have the choice, um, please give us that old deal or no deal option, um, would, I think, be uh, the wrong um, approach. And, I, and that's why it's very important this is a cross-party um, piece of work coming back at the moment. The, the, there are three um, uh, amendments that matter. Well, I'm going to come on. I'm going to come I mean, on the to customs the customs union is one right. of them. We um, talked about the customs union and the. Vote, and then and one on let's, come on, let's, let's come on to Northern Ireland then. Uh, and you've talked about uh, you, you proposed an amendment as well to say that there should be no checks, controls, or physical <coughs> infrastructure of any kind yeah. on the border between the North and um, and, and uh, the Republic. Um, um, where, where are you going to take this? Well, um, as everybody in this room will recall, at the end of phase one of the negotiations, um, one of the commitments um, that in the end got us over the hurdle of phase one was a commitment to no hard border in Northern Ireland. And that was spelt out um, that it was to apply in all circumstances, whatever the deal, um, and it was also spelt out that it would be no infrastructure, no checks, and no controls. Um, and the talks are now proceeding on the basis of that commitment. So it's, an, it's a commitment, albeit a political commitment, internationally in the negotiations. The amendment we've put down is to say that commitment should be turned into law. In other words, the government should not have power to act contrary to that commitment and therefore start installing infrastructure checks um, and controls. And that is so important um, to the economies of um, uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland and our own economy, but it is much more important than that, as everybody knows, uh, in relation to supporting and maintaining the peace process. And if anybody, and I'm sure there's nobody in this room, thinks that um, all that matters in Northern Ireland is the 
technical question of how you get people and goods over a border. They simply don't understand the history um, of Northern Ireland. Having no border there is the manifestation of peace. It is the symbol of peace. It's in the heart. It's not about whether you pay a tax across a border, although it is, of course, about that. It's a symbol of what Ireland and Northern Ireland have achieved in the last 20 years. Um, and so we want to hardwire that into legislation here to make it clear that that commitment matters not just in the negotiations but to our parliament and that we will not be signing off any deal uh, that does not deliver on that um, commitment. That, that would, you, would, you, would, you, would, you, would you accept, would Labour accept uh, a deal that had uh, physical, or would you, would you contemplate uh, physical infrastructure along in the Irish Sea? No. Or any kind of checks? No. So no, no. no, no more at all. No. Okay, let me come back finally to Parliament before we go, go, to, go to questions. Uh, there's going to be a lot of amendments, very yes. possibly, in the autumn. Um, how many do you think the Speaker should accept? Uh, well, uh, there are going to be a lot, and that is because um, of the careful work that's been done in the House of Lords on a cross-party basis, and that has been so important um, to all of us to ensure that it's done on a cross-party basis. I, I don't know how many are going to come back. Um, I think the three most important are um, the one that would keep us in a customs union with the EU, the one I've just described about Northern Ireland, um, and the one that the one gives one Parliament... The one that we've been, we've been discussing, on, on, on saying meeting. about the Parliament so they're, they're gets to say what happens. But, but right. anybody thinks that the government's going to um, escape difficult votes... It needs to just think about it wasn't what I was suggesting at all, but what I was suggesting was that there is going to be exactly this, this um, array of uh, likely yeah. amendments. Um, are you in favour of the Speaker really taking a lot of them? Yes. And he has a lot of discretion yes. to do it. Yes, this is, this is the way to bring Parliament properly into the process and give us a proper say on what the deal looks like. And this isn't, remember, this is not just the question of how do we survive the next few months through the autumn and into March of next year. This is, um, which is why the Prime Minister has been wrong all along to push Parliament away. What the Article 50 deal looks like will determine what our future relationship with the EU looks like, which is about the future of our country. Um, it will affect us internationally, it will uh, affect us domestically. Of course, there should be um, huge and intense scrutiny in Parliament, and of course, parliamentarians should um, vote on it. So I don't think there should be any um, suggestion that something wrong about us wanting to know what the future might look like and have a say about it. Of course we should. Um, there are going to be many votes between now and then anyway. I mean, one of the difficulties the government's got is because I think it thinks it's going to lose on some issues like a customs union, it has stacked up bills which should have already left us. So we've got a trade bill and a customs bill which we were expecting to have in for report and third reading weeks ago um, but because there's an amendment down to both those bills signed by a number of Tory MPs about keeping us in a customs union, the government's parked that bill up and doesn't know when to bring there it back. There is an immense amount of traffic, as, as you said. So one, one final question. If, uh, as you said, it, it just all gets very uh, cramped and late, do you think there's any possibility of an extension? Uh, Parliament agreeing extension to the time, when, when, the date when we leave? Well, we'll have to see. I mean, at, at the moment, uh, what I'd say to the government is get on with it. Um, you, you can't just park these problems for fear that Parliament might actually speak and might tell you that you're not in the right place on the negotiations. Um, and so, you know, we, we, at the end of last uh, term, 
we had a two-day general debate on the EU without votes. Now, I'm not against general debates on the EU, but general debates are general debates. They take up two days of parliamentary time. We didn't have a vote because it's a general debate. What we didn't have was a debate on the customs union with a vote, which is what we wanted. We didn't have that because the government thought it might lose the vote. And so it, it's parked them. People think it's going to come after the local elections. But um, this... We haven't actually voted on a Brexit issue for months in Parliament. Mm. I mean, it's one of the points that's made, I think, yeah. in your report. So, so the uh, as is the timetable to come in the next 11 and a half months. So, yeah, so, so, so suddenly we're going to get piles of votes coming in a few months because they've been parked for weeks on it. Great. Let's, um, let's go uh, straight, in, straight into questions. Let's start here. Would you talk through it time or? Hello, it's Chris Morris from the BBC. I've got two questions. Uh, first of all, uh, Keir, you keep using the phrase economically close to the EU, which is obviously a very different thing than the exact same benefits of the single market and the customs union. So, uh, sort of following up on um, the initial question, uh, is uh, test number two a political ploy? So, come October, you can say, see, the Tories don't know what they're talking about, vote Labour, or is it a point of fundamental principle? And if it's the latter, is there a point in which you're going to push for the Labour Party to explicitly campaign for staying in not just the customs union, but the single market as well? Well, uh, thank, I, thank, I, thank you. One other question. Um, it's, it's, there's a lot of people with hands up, if, if that's your best shot. Um, well, the second you, one was even better. I'm really, I'm really sorry. Can we, st can we stick with that? Thanks. Yeah. Do you want to do two or three? No, just do one. Okay. Um, the reason I said what I did at the outset was to demonstrate it's not a political ploy. A political ploy would be something that you knew the government had never committed to, could never commit to, and you're simply putting it up there to show they couldn't ever achieve it. That is, that is what the government committed to. That's not that, can't, that, it's impossible to call that a political ploy. Say to the government, right, we've, we've noted carefully what you've said, um, we've um, put it into a test and we're going to hold you to it. It's not a political ploy. Does it matter? Yeah, it really matters. Um, because the benefits of the single market and the customs union are essential, I think, uh, to our economic well-being. And they also dictate the sort of future relationship you're going to have with the EU. Now, we'll have to see in the autumn what happens. We'll apply our tests. We want the meaningful vote to operate in the way that we intend it. Um, to operate, but when we say we want the benefits of the single market and the customs union, we're serious about that. It's one of the things we've said consistently from start um, to finish. I accept there are different ways uh, of possibly delivering that. I've given the example of the customs union, subject to negotiation, of course. Um, but is it a serious test? Yes, it is. Is it a political ploy? No, it's not. It's taken from the gov. It was said by David Davis, not once, but a number of cones, and it was owned uh, by the Prime Minister herself when the test was set out. That can't be a political ploy. That is good opposition, holding the government to its own commitments. Okay, great. Uh, here, second. And, uh, we've, got, we've got good time. We'll try and come. Uh, hi there. Hi. Uh, Gervais Bolden from Bayes, um, asking a question in a personal capacity. Um, uh, I'd like to ask a question about um, farming uh, policy and environmental protections. Um, we've obviously made huge strides on environmental yeah. um, protections within the EU. However, the cap has been, common agricultural policy has been criticised um, at times for um, subsidies to large uh, landowners and not always prioritising environmental protection. Um, so Michael Gove is putting in plans, uh, lots of ways to redirect that funding to make sure it's prioritising uh, protecting natural capital um, and all these types of things rather than 
just uh, subsidies to larger landowners. So doing those kind of changes would probably be difficult within the customs union. Um, so would making more environmental protection from the uh, farming subsidy system, would that be a priority for Labour under any negotiation? Yeah, I mean, thank you for raising that. It's a really important um, point. Um, let me just make a small point and then get to the substance of it. Michael Gove said a lot of things, um, but we actually haven't seen a legislation um, giving effect to them. And some of what he's said, we've tried to put into amendments uh, to other bits of legislation and the government hasn't accepted them. So um, uh, I will test Michael Gove and what he says by what he actually delivers and puts before the House for us to vote on. Um, speeches are great, but they don't actually deliver um, results. But the point, the broader point about environmental protection um, is really important, and I think there are um, a number of aspects to it. The first is that a lot of the protection that we've got of the environment at the moment comes from European standards that we have agreed. Um, and they have helped a great deal. Um, farming is an example, air quality is another example. In Hoban St Pancras, which is my constituency, we've got uh, real concerns about um, air pollution, um, and it's the European standards that um, we have been trying to enforce to deal with that. One of my concerns about the EU withdrawal bill on environmental standards in general is that whilst it is true the government is saying we're going to convert those standards um, from EU standards essentially into our own domestic standards, um, um, and Michael Gove says, well, that's a necessary first step. Um, what they're less clear about is what the enforcement mechanisms are going to be. And that's really important because, you know, having worked as a human rights lawyer, slightly different all my life, I know that um, rights are a good thing, but unenforceable rights are not worth the paper they're written on. So there's a battle to be had about capturing those um, standards. I've got nothing... So um, your version uh, nothing, is, 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 is... Nothing against is um, improving those standards as time goes by. But the one thing we don't want is to have... Um, the whether it's environmental standards or other standards, a, 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 an unhooking of our standards from EU standards in very many fields because it will simply make it impossible for us to trade in the way that we trade um, at the moment. So, um, Even we, if it made it possible to trade with other countries? Well, you know, the, 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 the trade with other countries um, point again, needs to be um, examined. I find the idea that other countries out there are queuing up to give us a much better deal than they would give us if we were negotiating as a bloc with the EU, and on much preferable standards um, with terms and conditions because we're the UK. I, th I find that at least untested, and I can't see the evidence. Um, I actually think, and it's part of our rationale for the customs union, um, that um, we are more likely to get the sort of new trade deals that we all want if we do it together with our EU um, partners, um, and I think it's extremely unlikely that countries are going to say, well, because you're the UK, we'll do something special and different for you according to different mm -hmm. standards. I don't, I don't accept that basic proposition. So um, that's why, you know, choices have to be made. What we're saying is we think the economic um, deal with the EU is the most important, and we must keep our focus on that um, and not be distracted by the untested theory um, there are lots of better deals to be had elsewhere by countries that, because we're the UK, are going to do something special for us, which they wouldn't do for um, a trading block of 27 EU countries. Thanks very much. Um, second row. Sue Street, who is speaker as a former civil servant. Um, so uh, 
I was full of admiration for you as DPP, where you were a very distinguished public servant, and I used to use your guidelines on assisted dying as an example of how careful and impartial um, the civil service had to be. And now I see you absolutely relishing the knockabout of Parliament, not missing a chance to knock the government, um, and actually a very senior member of a, a very left-leaning Labour Party, more left-leaning than I can remember. So what I want to know is, did you always think like that, but you were suppressing <laughs> it? Uh, and if not, when did you drink the Kool-Aid? Well, um, will the real Keir kill, Starmer? <laughs> um, well, let, let's just um, trace it through. Um, before I was um, a, a, a civil servant, um, I was an advocate in court, um, doing initially individual cases, later strategic litigation. Um, and that involved every day arguing about propositions, standing them up, knocking them down, testing them against the evidence. That is the role of an advocate. Um, and that's important because the whole basis of our um, justice system is, is developed on the basis that um, if you have an adversarial um, approach, which is you put a proposition up and then you ask another party to challenge it, that under that intense scrutiny, um, a judge or a jury, whichever it may be, will, will, will be able to assess um, where the truth lies or, or, or where the merit um, lies. So those skills don't come as new to me. They're the skills I've been using um, throughout. I was... Um, very, very careful um, as DPP um, to be independent and to be seen to be independent. And one of the things I tried to do was to be uh, much more transparent about the way that the Crown Prosecution Service under my watch explained itself. So that, because I didn't think that, um, and I don't think this about um, any leader, that standing up and saying I'm independent um, is the best way of proving your independence. The best way to do it is to show your workings so that people can judge for themselves um, whether you are holding true to the rules and principles you said you would apply. And assisted dying was an example of that. I wanted people to understand what was the framework that we were going to apply to the decisions before we arrived at them, rather than arriving at the decision and then saying, um, trust us because we're um, independent. Um, whilst I was in the civil service, I became very concerned about the extent to which our public services were being cut. Um, and I got to the point of thinking it is... That, that what I saw as the post-Second World War contract, if you like, that in this country been shared by many, many countries, about um, how we um, deliver services, what we mean by the delivery service, was getting to a point where um, it was under such strain that it needed um, to be changed, which is um, why I took the step after leaving um, the office of DPP to become um, the Member of Parliament for Hoban and St Pancras. Having done that, and you say knockabout and taking points off the government, etc., well, of course, that's bundled up in the nature of politics. I try not to do it in too tribal a way, and I have on a number of occasions been accused of being too reasonable um, in the approach that I've taken. But, I, but I, there is a really important point here, because um, just as in advocacy, so to some extent in politics, um, I am convinced that the best decisions that are made politically and actually in every walk of life are the decisions that are tested, rigorously tested, and the worst decisions are the decisions that are not tested. Um, and if anybody needs evidence of that, read the Chilcot report, not for the big 
issues in there that we argued about over the years about the lawfulness of going to um, uh, in, into taking law, uh, uh, armed action and all the rest of it. But the litany of things that went wrong, um, and I was really struck by the fact that there just wasn't enough challenge. It, when I was DPP, I mean, you will have seen, you know this, uh, we all set up um, boards to make sure that we were challenged. In the Crown Prosecution Service, I said, I want my four directors, who were me and three other members of staff, and I want four non-executives so that we can't outvote the non-executives. And it was a really big thing in the civil service. It was really important because it meant that we could be stopped in our tracks. In politics, I think, if you take out um, a sort of robust opposition, you, you may take out the knockabout, and people may say, well, that's a lot more grown up. But you also take out a central challenge. And once you take out a central challenge, bigger mistakes will be made. Um, and I think when we're talking about something like Brexit, um, we cannot allow that um, to happen. And that's why actually the role of the opposition, particularly after the last election, is so important um, in all of this. I hope that gives you at least some reassurance as to, as to the journey, um, if not uh, the outcome. You've made your case for being a professional challenger. Anyway, um, let's, let's, let's come, come over here. And I've, um, thanks, good, good note of. Hi, yeah. um, my name is Amelia. I work for Politics Home. Um, you mentioned the importance of Northern Ireland peace process. Um, so what might you say to those that believe that the Good Friday Agreement is a shibboleth in the Brexit negotiations, um, and also those who think that your exact same benefits test, given that you say it's not a political ploy, is, sorry, bollocks. Um, and also, are you concerned about government promises about the rights of EU citizens already living here, given the debacle over the Wimrush children? Um. Thank you. This is obviously referring to Barry Garner. I think it is a word that has been uttered in the IFG. Yeah, before. just wrong. Yeah. Wrong. Um, and I've said that consistently about anybody who tries to downplay the significance of the Good Friday uh, Agreement. And I say that not just as a knockabout opposition member, but as someone who, before I was Director of Public Prosecutions, um, worked with the policing board in Northern Ireland for five years um, implementing. Or, uh, an aspect of the Good Friday Agreement. Part of the Good Friday Agreement, as you will all know, is that it was very important for the Royal Ulster Constabulary to transform into the police service of Northern Ireland. It's a really big success story, um, partly because of the controversy of what may or may not have happened, but partly because the, the RUC, for very obvious reasons, struggled to represent both sides of the community. Um, and um, one, my role with the policing board was to oversee the way the Police Service of Northern Ireland operated to make sure that it was transparent, complied with human rights, and to ensure that in the end we could get political representation on the policing board that would allow, in that case, Catholics to come onto the, um, uh, firstly the policing board and then into the now Police Service of Northern Ireland. So I, I say anybody who downplays that is wrong, but I say it um, not as a as it were, an outsider, but as someone who's been deeply involved in the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement, not as much as others, I'm not overclaiming it, but having spent a good deal of my life with the communities in Northern Ireland and in Ireland and understanding um, why this is not just a technical issue and it is something about the whole makeup uh, of the people in Ireland and Northern Ireland. So anybody who downplays that from whichever political party is just wrong. And I think Barry Gardner in particular went out very quickly to accept that he was wrong. Thank you very much indeed. Um, let's go right to the back there. Um, yeah, John Pete from The Economist. Um, uh, one possible outcome of the parliamentary uh, manoeuvring could be a demand to put the issue of the agreement back to the voters. 
Um, and as you know, in your constituency on Sunday, there was the launch of a campaign for what's now been called a people's vote. Do you think at some point during the next six to nine months, it's possible Labour will come out in favour of putting this issue back to the people? Well, we've been consistent saying that's not what we're calling for. We have absolutely focused um, on the meaningful vote and getting um, Parliament to have a say um, on this. Now, I appreciate that um, the People's Vote campaign was uh, launched in Camden, in my constituency, just about um, uh, a mile from where I live, um, and that there are some in my party, actually in cross parties, who feel very strongly that um, it ought to go at some stage back to um, the people. But I think the focus has to be on the meaningful vote um, in Parliament. That's why we've not called for a, a people's vote um, uh, either this year or any stage. Thanks very much. Right here in the front. Thank you. It's Masato Kimura, Japanese journalist. Uh, could Friday agreement 20 years, I participated in the press tour to Belfast and Delhi, and I found three different borders. So first, I had to show passport at Heathrow Airport, and uh, uh, British company, even British company showed a passport for security reasons. I feel it is a security border. And the second, I beyond uh, the border from Northern Ireland to Ireland, uh, just it's three meters. Uh, uh, I have to say in meters because it is Irish territory. And uh, my home called me, and so you beyond the borders uh, from the Irish uh, border home. And I feel it is a digital border already. And so. Finally, I had an interview with uh, Ian Paisley Jr. and uh, Sinn Féin MP MPs, and uh, so they sit a uh, totally different place, and uh, the distance, the difference is yeah. uh, so huge, and so, uh, and I feel a supporter for nationalists, and uh, uh, would like to have a referendum for South and uh, North reunifications, and uh, so I feel a mind boundary, boundaries there. And yeah. how do you respond to the reality? Well, the, taking the, both those points, um, if I may, the first thing is, um, uh, uh, and this was something which was not accurately represented in the referendum, there's always been security checks at the border coming into the UK. There's always been security checks coming in, um, and rightly so. We, I, I, you know, we all show our passports on the way in, um, partly to show whether you are a UK uh, a, 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 an EU citizen, because that then determines what your rights are as you cross into the border into the UK, partly to determine whether you're not, partly to allow security checks um, to go on. That, is, um, that has always happened, and, and the notion that was put out there that somehow there are simply no checks at the borders is, is wrong. Um, and theoretically, of course, that can happen um, for goods as well. Um, as, I mean... <laughs> In my new role, Sue, I, mean, I used to be in criminal courts. Now I go to borders and ports and stand on borders and ports. So I stood on the Norway-Sweden um, uh, one. I go to Dover quite often. If you look at Dover, they're, they're getting 10,000 freight lorries through a day. Um, they do carry out some checks, but because we're in the EU, they're very, very light checks, and they can do it very quickly, and they don't need to check most of the stuff. Um, but the idea that we've ever really operated borders where there are no checks um, is wrong. Save, of course... Um, within the EU, 
um, where um, in particular at Northern Ireland there simply is no infrastructure, no checks and controls, and hasn't been for a long time. And never forget that in Northern Ireland it didn't mean just a customs officer standing um, at the border, it meant a customs team at the border with, um, in latter, you know, during the height of the Troubles, then um, soldiers and troops and um, you know, up to half a mile of chicane to get even anywhere near the border because of the risk of attacks which were um, very common. Um, and so, and that's why um, it's such an important issue. But the idea that we've never really had any security checks at the border, we never had to show our passports at the border, is, is obviously and manifestly wrong. Thanks very much. Uh, right here in the front. Um, Artie Shanker, Open Europe. Uh, just to come back to the meaningful vote question, um, the EU have said that what's going to be on the table in October, the autumn of this year, is going to be the withdrawal agreement plus a broad brush political declaration of what the future relationship will be. The government have talked privately, internally, about a heads of terms agreement in October this year. So to what extent will Parliament really be voting, having a meaningful vote on the future UK-EU relationship when that vote comes along? Or will you really be voting on things like the Citizens' Rights Agreement and the Brexit Bill? Yeah, I mean, thank you for that. Um, what we will see, I think, is um, real detail on the withdrawal aspects because that needs to be detailed. Um, and um, then something about the future arrangements, and we don't know yet how specific it's going to be. I accept that. Uh, there are some that are pushing for it to be pretty general. Um, there are others that want it to be much more specific. And I think David Davis is in the second camp. He is still promising it is going to be all but finished. Uh, you're going to know the detail, and he's um, sending quite a lot of people out um, to Brussels to negotiate to try and achieve that. So we don't know, is the answer to that. We don't know what we're going to see. Um, the, um, the problem the Prime Minister faces, it seems to me, is that the more specific she is, the more likely she is to have a problem on her own side. Um, because um, there is a fundamental difference in approach around her cabinet table in her party. At the moment, that can be um, glossed over if you stay in general territory. Um, um, whether she will opt for that um, or be allowed to opt for that in October, November, I don't know. Um, and we will simply have to apply our tests and our meaningful vote to whatever the proposition is on the table when it comes back. Um, politics will dictate how far the Prime Minister feels she can go on that between now and then. Thanks very much. Right at the back. Hi, uh, Victoria Taylor from the FDA Trade Union. Um, I think it's really useful to talk about the challenges around having a meaningful say on the uh, final deal and access to the single market, but I think there's a challenge that hasn't been picked up. Um, and that's the potential for damage to the civil service um, as we go on route to Brexit. Increasingly, and we saw it this week not just with Brexit but with Windrush, uh, ministers are turning on the civil servants that they work with, particularly when they face criticism from the opposition. Unjustified and unprofessional attacks on the civil service undermines the work that our members do. And I think it has a danger of creating a really uh, difficult environment in Whitehall. Will you forgive me? Do you have a question? Yes, I do. Um, how can the opposition and indeed the government be more effective in supporting public servants who are working to deliver a successful Brexit? Uh, we should be very clear and supportive of the civil service. Um, and um, it was my privilege to be a civil servant for five years and to head a team of civil servants. Um, and I saw for myself and on the inside um, just how hard um, civil servants work, not only in my department but across the piece, um, and how I think 
deep down, uh, those working in the civil service have a real sense of public service. And um, we must never lose, it's quite an incredible thing. Um, now, it doesn't mean everything's done perfectly, it doesn't mean mistakes aren't made, but um, for every mistake that's made, there are many, many, many good things that are done, but they're done by people who, are, who I think are not just doing it for a job, but do it because they believe in, in public service. Um, and they can't very often speak for themselves because of the position they find themselves in. Um, and in those circumstances, it falls on the rest of us to speak for them. Um, now, the leaders in the civil service need to do it, and they do do it, and I was very um, pleased to see um, the leaders in the civil service come out very quickly in response to the recent um, attacks, but the recent attacks were um, misplaced and wrong and unfair. But also, I mean, there's, there's, there's politics behind this because um, some of those that were keenest to spell out the sort of fantasy benefits of an extreme version of Brexit um, have had to begin to confront the fact um, that their promised land isn't there um, and it isn't going to deliver. And what they've done in those circumstances, instead of being honest about it and saying it's going to be more difficult than we thought, um, there are all these problems we're going to have to negotiate, they've turned on anybody that they can um, as the cause of the problem. So um, when the judges said um, Parliament ought to have a vote, we got dreadful headlines um, um, about the judges. And the judges are another example like civil servants, of a group of individuals doing a really good job. The quality of our jo judges is in, you know, renowned the world across, but they can't speak in their own defence because they're impartial, because they're independent. And that's why the government should have been straight out much quicker. There was a lot of criticism, you may recall, at the time of the government for not defending the judges. No sooner had those on the sort of um, extreme Brexit wing finished with the judges, and they turned on their own colleagues. So having, the judges having said, you know, there ought to be a role for Parliament in this, parliamentarians said, well, if there's a role for us, we'd probably better vote. Um, and then they voted um, against the government, and we had um, equally appalling headlines about um, members, uh, Tory MPs that we saw. No sooner had that all finished um, than having pushed for impact assessments, we'd been challenged to the government, surely you've done some economic analysis, where is it? We had the farce of David Davis saying, I've done so much, you can't imagine how detailed it is, it's incredible. He said, where is it? When, and when we finally got an order saying we've got to see it, he said, well, I, I, it doesn't exactly exist as such. Um, but instead of confront, and then we got further economic analysis, and at that point, um, because it was civil servants doing um, the work, what did those on the extreme wing of the sort of Brexiteers do? They then turned on the civil servants. So rather than having a sort of grown-up discussion about how difficult all this may be, it's simply turning on one group after another, but to turn particularly on groups of individuals who were doing a very, very good job um, with civil service um, ethos, uh, in everything they do, and a group that can't necessarily speak and fight back on their own um, is, is not a very honourable thing to do. Thank you. This is not a platform where you're going to be attacked for saying that, but uh, on the other hand, well, to, point, mean, out, I, I, to I, point out, in fairness, ministers have well, also I, sat here and given, given a lot of tributes to what the civil service is doing. And rightly so. Let's, let's go to the middle, please. Uh, James Kidner from Improbable. We're a tech startup who do large-scale simulation. I want to come back to Sue Street's excellent question about where's the real you in all of this? Because I see a sort of disconnect between you as a loyal citizen who wants a good outcome for the country and you as a member of Her Majesty's loyal opposition who wants a bad outcome for the government. Do you think that we can get a good Brexit that's nonetheless bad for the government? And what, what will good look like from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, that, 
thank you for that challenge, because it's a challenge not for me, I think it's for the whole opposition. And that is, what is the role of opposition in this difficult um, period um, where, on any view, these negotiations are the most difficult um, that we've entered into as a country for many decades. Um, and the role of the opposition, it seems to me, is in the first hand, as I tried to set out, to challenge, 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 and robustly and keep on challenging, keep on flushing out those economic assessments, keep on holding the government to its commitments, um, and voting against the government to challenge the government and to put out an alternative way of doing it, which is what we've done. But we also have to act in the national interest. We have, I think we have to act in the national um, interest. Um, and it is not in the interests of my constituents um, or any constituents of any MP um, for um, all of this to collapse um, in a way which puts in danger our economy and our relations with the EU. That isn't in our interests. Um, and I say that um, from the opposition front bench. I say that as the MP for Hope and St Pancras, the constituents I care about. But I also say it because I'm a dad with young kids. And I don't want to explain to my kids that we got one great vote victory in 2018-2019, but um, that the country as a whole um, was put in jeopardy because of um, a bad deal. But this is the responsibility primarily of the government. And one of the things about the meaningful vote is that the government knows what it is they're going to be held to. And in my view, the Prime Minister should be looking at what is right for the country and for Parliament and less of how am I going to get this through my party. Um, and if we went down that route, we might be having a different conversation. Great. Um, let me take... Um, um, I'm going to take a cluster here as the last... I go, right, actually, we're going to have all four <laughs> as, the, as, as last ones. There's as, as three people here and, uh, and over here. Thank you. I'm Christopher Montgomery, ERG. You said a few minutes ago that there was no border infrastructure between the UK and the Republic of Ireland. That's simply incorrect. There are weighing stations, there's ANPR cameras, um, there are other things which contribute to the currently successful counter-terrorism campaign. Your leader has a truly shameful record in terrorism. Can you make it clear on behalf of the official opposition that border infrastructure, either the stuff we have at the moment or the stuff that we might have in the future, can never be a legitimate target? It can't be used, it can't be adduced as a reason for why we can't have a can you make, can make, can make really briefly what, clear what your question is? It's not legitimate for anti-Brexiteers to say right. attack, it's legitimate to attack border infrastructure. It can't be. Right. Of course it is. Jeremy Corbyn's never said that. I've never said it. Nobody on the front bench has ever said it. As far as I know, nobody in the Labour Party has ever said it, and I certainly hope not. OK, thank you. Next. Uh, Mark Bowliat from the City of London. Uh, we have yep. border ANPR going into the City of London. Um, uh, business is having to get on with it and assume a worst-case scenario of a hard Brexit next year, but hoping it'll be better. I just wonder what contacts you're having with business, what are the views you're hearing, and are they influencing your approach? Yeah. Thank you. We'll just come forwards here. We're going to take these last three. Forgive, forgive um, me, but better to get you in. David Moore, Hanover Communications. Um, we've heard about delays to the customs systems after Brexit. Um, as well as immigration. What do you think happens in December 2020 if the UK isn't ready to leave um, the EU and could um, it remain in the customs union for years to come afterwards? Great. And um, last one. 
Thank you. Thanks, Brahman. Um, Keir, one of the Labour government's biggest achievements ever has been the Good Friday Agreement, and um, the Blair government especially had put a huge amount of effort into bringing it about. We celebrated 20 years last week. Uh, the day we were celebrating that anniversary, I met with your the Labour Party head in the European Parliament to explain that you haven't done enough to defend and protect the Good Friday Agreement. And while you have been there and have visited the borders, I'm still concerned about the possibility of a hard border and diminution of people's rights. Thank you. Would you like to say who you are? Oh, sorry, Bronwyn. Michelle Gildernew, the Sinn Féin MP for Fernanda South Road. Thank you very much, Michelle. <coughs> OK, contact with business, uh, staying in the customs union for ages and... Um, and Northern Ireland. And a Harbour. tribute to Tony Blair. Um, <laughs> so far as businesses are concerned, um, there isn't a week goes by without me having um, many meetings with businesses. Um, and I've done it across the whole of the UK, um, sometimes groups of businesses, sometimes one-on-ones with businesses. Um, I think, and I haven't totted it up completely, that I've probably had, you know, I probably had the, the equivalent of one-to-one uh, meetings, I literally one-to-one or in small groups with over 1,500 businesses of every shape and size, um, from the really huge businesses in the city that I've been having a discussion with uh, to some of the smaller businesses across um, the country, because I am acutely aware um, that if we're going to get this right for the economy, I need to understand how those businesses actually operate at the moment and how any changes to the arrangements at the moment will impact um, upon them. And the only way to do that is to have those conversations with businesses. And, and, I, and I think and I hope that um, the business community has recognised the extent to which we've had contact with them, communication um, with them, um, and that is ongoing and it will continue to be ongoing because if this is going to be done in a way which is protective of the economy, it's going to be done and have to be done in a way which means that we truly understand the challenges that businesses um, have out there and how they might have to adapt um, to a different future. So I can, you can rest assured that, that a lot of uh, that contact has gone on and it will continue um, to go on. What will happen in December 2020? Um, uh, let's wait and see. Like all things uh, Brexit, is there a prospect that we will continue in a customs union with the EU? I hope so. That is what we are advocating, um, because we think that is important for um, the country as a long-term relationship with the EU. Now, it may well be that it will have to be a short extension even on the government's um, view. Um, they've said December 2020 is the end of or the uh, transition. I think the government actually would like a bit longer uh, than that. Um, but you've got to remember that by that time, you've got to have the whole of any new treaty agreed, and it's not just trade. Um, it's uh, really important in terms of uh, criminal justice and other security issues, which I was deeply involved in when I was DPP. They are not straightforward. Um, it has to cover you know, the way aeroplanes take off and land. There are lots and lots of things in addition to the trade deal that have got to be agreed. Um, and um, whatever that new agreement is, assuming it is negotiated, and it's really complicated, um, it's also got to be um, ratified, which is not a quick process. Um, so um, I don't know what will happen in December 2020. Um, if we continue in a customs union, that will be um, uh, consistent with the position that Labour has adopted for the long-term future relationship with the um, EU. So far as the um, Good Friday Agreement is concerned, obviously Labour were very deeply involved um, 
Tony Blair in particular in the Good Friday Agreement, um, but also others, John Major and, and others. There was truly um, um, uh, some really important leadership in this, um, and we're very proud um, of that. Um, and I think we have um, defended that um, over the 20 years um, consistently. Um, and there is a shared consensus across Parliament. Um, this was felt in one of the amendments, the EU withdrawal bill that was going up, um, there was a, an, a disagreement about the Good Friday Agreement and the sense was that it shouldn't be put to a vote because we didn't want to split Parliament on the Good Friday Agreement because of that cross-party support for it. But what we're doing on the amendment that we're putting down now um, on ensuring that there's no hard border is to try to consistent with that Defence of the Good Friday Agreement, make sure that there's no wriggle room for anybody to start suggesting that some of the essential components are not as important now as they once were. Thank you very much indeed for that. We're going to have to end there. Um, can I um, recommend to you, as I said, um, the report that we put out this week, a forthcoming report uh, one of our next our excellent Brexit team on the preparedness of Whitehall, going back to that question and a debate coming up on um, Good Friday Agreement at 20. Um, thank you very much indeed for all your terrific questions. Can you join me in thanking Sophia Starmer? Thank you.